Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello. And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, he sits, he stays, he shoots, he scores. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good. I'm pretty sure that that is the tagline for Airbud. <laughs> it's correct, Ed. Uh, I mean, as the taglines go, that is a masterpiece. Yeah, it gets in, gets out, it establishes everything you could possibly need to know about that. The the first film in an incredible lineage of subsequent films about dogs doing things dogs shouldn't do. Mm, is, he's a, a basketball dog in the first film, isn't he? Does he yeah. conquer other sports as they go? Well, I believe there's all of those... I assume it's the same series, otherwise it's, someone's got a lawsuit on their hands, but there's things like Snow Buddies, where mm. it's like cute puppies in the snow and things like that, and they all have Space Buddies, I think is one as well. There's just all this series of, I assume, the original dog's kids going into crazy situations, um, mm. which is perplexing and was one of my favourite things whenever I used to go into HMV in Sheffield is I'd walk around and there would always be a new Buddies film just kind of on the shelves for undiscerning kids or despairing parents to kind of pick up. Mm. You It's that kind of thing that exists and you're like, seriously, who is buying this shit? Mm. I mean, I mean, how much contempt do you have for your children if you're buying it for them? <laughs> um, and if you are buying it for yourself, then you probably need to sort your fucking life out. Mm. Yeah, it's like the 13 straight-to-video sequels to Land Before Time, 12 mm. of which I've watched because me and my friends John and Michaela once about four years ago decided we were going to have a movie marathon and we discovered that they were all, all 13 as existed at the time, were available to stream on Netflix. Mm. And we decided to watch all of them over the course of a single day, which was very good for drinking games because we invented lots of crazy rules, but pray, probably not good for our general mood and sanity. Uh, mm. And they actually produced a 14th one this year, and I'm starting to wonder if they suddenly got the metrics through from Netflix and thought, oh, this series is hot again, because <laughs> there was suddenly a massive spike in views on that one day in July of 2012. Mm. By any measure... Ed, that's demented behaviour. I don't know what you were thinking. Uh, I think we were thinking that we were poor and we had access to broadband. Well, yeah, I mean, that's all you need these days uh, for an evening such. Let's get into some news uh, before we get into the main topic. Um, 2016 continues to be um, a terrible year for people staying alive um, with uh, three kind of titans in their field uh, all passing away in a single day. We had uh, Michael Cimino, Carolina Hearn and Robin Hardy all kind of punched their tickets yesterday, which is kind of crazy, really. It seems like someone's having a, a kind of cosmic joke at our expense. Yeah, and that was one where it was like the first one. I think the first one I saw was Robin Hardy because I think he the news of him dying broke first. And you thought, oh, that's mm-hmm. a shame. But also, you know, he was quite old. I think he was probably in his 80s. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, you know, he's obviously someone who directed one of the most iconic British horror films of all time, so it was very sad to see him go. Then Caroline Hearn was the second one, and that was just devastating because she was so young, and she'd had, like, on Wikipedia, her, like, personal... If you go to, like, the personal life segment, it is literally just constantly battling cancer and depression. Mm -hmm. But who was an amazing actress and a wonderful writer, 
by all accounts are just a wonderful person and that was really heartbreaking and then Chimino broke in the end of the day and on Twitter there was like a level of disbelief about it as if come on him as well just mm. because I think partly because the news was broken in French from like one Twitter account mm-hmm. so there was a sense of skepticism it's like well no one else is confirming this uh, so there was like an hour or so of just kind of like no he can't go as well mm. we're supposed to only have like two a day yeah yeah, yeah, but they, yeah, it's it's been like a bit of a domino effect this year, mm. um, and as far as I'm concerned, 2016 could just fuck off. Yeah, I think we should probably institute at the beginning of each episode of this show, we should just have a kind of a roll call of the dead, and we'll just say someone's name and then set off a cannon like in the Hunger Games, because that, <laughs> that is what 2016 is increasingly feeling like. It's definitely a quarter quell. Yeah, in in Michael Chimino's case, it's caused a lot of people to kind of reassess his career, I guess. He's always mm. been one of those fairly divisive people. We've talked about him on the show before. I mean, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot was a uh, solid entry in our in our alternate 100. Mm-hmm. But you and I are kind of, well, I'm certainly less sold on The Deer Hunter than most people are. It yeah. would be a film that I'd be fascinated to revisit. But also Heaven's Gate seems to divide... Uh, people, but I, I saw. I think uh, it might have been Edgar Wright described it as one of the greatest swings for the fences in cinema history, which is a polite way of putting it. But on the news yesterday, when they announced it on television, they said, "Oh, Michael Cimino directed the Deer Hunter, absolute masterpiece." He also did Heaven's Gate, which closed the studio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I'm, I've said many times in this, that I think Heaven's Gate is not a very good film. Uh, for me, I, 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 you know, obviously a lot of people do really appreciate it, and I certainly appreciate that it was a mad, raving, ambitious thing to try and do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, like you say, is why it basically killed off an entire cinematic movement and closed the studio. Mm. Uh, and you know, not many people can do that with a single film. So it's, you've got to respect him for his kind of scope. Um, mm-hmm. And even though I don't like that, and or the Deer Hunter, I both think they're kind of bloated and they don't really play to his strengths as a filmmaker which is that he was a great vision he was a great stylist but not a particularly good storyteller mm-hmm. which i think is why thunderbolt and lightfoot is the best film he ever did just because he had clint eastwood there just kind of saying okay good we've got the shot let's move on <laughs> mm. uh, to kind of rein him in and without those restrictions he kind of got lost a little bit in the details um but like he was someone who had a tremendous impact in a very short period of time and it's kind of a shame that his career never recovered from that because, you know, for for very good reasons, people were a bit nervous about giving him more money. Mm. So his career after 1980 is is very spotty. Mm, Yeah, yeah. In other news, uh, there's been a big shape-up in kind of the Oscar field uh, because they've... uh, We mentioned this earlier around the Oscar so white controversy from this year. They've kind of shaken up the rules for membership of the Academy, haven't they? And um, this week has seen uh, kind of a new influx of members. Is that correct? Yeah, they announced the 2016 class where they basically, the the people that they've invited to become members, uh, I'm not sure if uh, at what point they get accepted, but they sent out 683 invites, which is a record total of people being invited to join the Academy. I couldn't find statistics on every year, but a couple of articles I read, usually it'd be like a couple of hundred people. Mm -hmm. So this was far and away the most people they've ever invited. The makeup was 46% women and 41% people of colour, which again were both records. 283 international members, which was a new record. And it was just like a huge influx of new people from a lot of different disciplines. People who 
you wouldn't think of necessarily as being Oscar uh, Academy members, either because of the kind of films that they make or because they mainly work in television. But I jotted down a list of some of the people who are now Academy members, or who will be if they accept it. Martin Starr, who we'll be talking about in a bit. Lynn Ramsey, Takeshi Kitano, Lillian Lana Wachowski, John Boyega, Idris Elba, Greta Gerwig, Louise Guzman, James Hong, who a mere 414 credits into his career (laughs) finally gets to join the Academy. Michael B. Jordan, Oscar Isaac, Dakota Johnson, Damon Wayans Jr., Marlon Wayans, Keenan Ivory Wayans, but not Damon Wayans Sr., so he's been left out of the lurch there. Lexi Alexander, Anna Lily Armapour, Ryan Coogler, Mary Hannon, Patty Jenkins, Park Chan-wook, Nicholas Winding Refn, Marjane Satrani, Melvin Van Peebles, Taika Waititi, Apichpong, Warinsifakul, Asif Kapadia, Joshua Oppenheimer, Margaret Sixall, Mary J. Blige, The Rizza, Sire, Tina Fey, Ice Cube and Yorgos Lafimos. Um, did you make some of them up? Nope, they are all entirely real. <laughs> so Mary J. Blige is in the Academy. Yeah, and some, of, some mean... of those are not necessarily that surprising, like Margaret Sixall won for editing Mad Max Fury Road, and I believe... The rules have always been that if you win an Oscar, you automatically get to become a member. Or if you're, no- I think uh, if you're nominated, you are also accepted as well. I believe. Right. Yeah, but like that's a a great selection of people. A lot of people there who you would not think would ever get invited to the Academy, um, like Takeshi Kitano, who is mm-hmm. uh, a lunatic but a wonderful mm. writer and filmmaker and actor. The Rizza, who has done a lot of work in film, but then again, you know, he's not the sort of person who you immediately leap to as who would be on the Academy's Rolodex. No, um, but I mean, what kind of what kind of um, influence is this going to have? Because I, I mean, I saw a couple of people. I think I think I saw Brie Larson tweet something along the lines of, uh, "I feel now I'm responsible. I'm going to vote for people who you know I believe in, kind of stand for. I want to kind of see rather than I don't know what the best film or what. Does this mean we're going to stop seeing kind of tawdry shit winning every year, and we're going to kind of see perhaps a, a different skew of the demographic, maybe?" Almost certainly not. Um, (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of inertia with a organization like the Academy. And and even though this is a huge influx of new people, it's the most diverse Oscar class ever. The impact it has is is kind of fairly minor. Like the the percentage of women in the Academy goes up from 25% to 27%. And then the the people of colour goes from 8% to 11%. So it's had... Uh, that is not nothing. That is an increase of a lot when you're looking at an organisation that has thousands of members. But it's kind of a small step in the right direction. And I think that it's going to take a while. You know, part of the other rule of this is uh, uh, that they're going to start purging the, the register of older members who aren't so active anymore. So the the Academy will get gradually less older and white and male, but it's going to take a few years of, of kind of adding this many people with this kind of makeup before you start to see any real change in the overall composition of the organization. And until that happens, I think you're not going to see something like really interesting and, uh, and bold. Like you're not going to see like a tangerine get nominated for best picture or something for, you know, a, a decade or something like that. But it certainly feels like a, a step in the right direction. And also there are smaller changes that I think people haven't really discussed, such as, one of the rules that was passed is that there's basically going to be an end to the kind of Oscar galas that take place in advance of voting, where people try to curry favour by holding big banquets and kind of praising people to kind of try and get them to vote for their projects. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, if if it ends, an end to kind of 
fawning lobbying could uh, force people to focus more on the work a bit more, which mm. I think is probably more likely to have an effect in the short term than necessarily the change to the, the makeup of the Academy's voting body. Mm, what are the Weinsteins going to do if you can't grease a few palms? Oh, they'll find a way to do it. They'll just invite everyone out to personal lunches. Mm, just yeah. thousands upon thousands <laughs> of just kind of coffee, coffees and, uh, you know, hamburgers until they both just have heart attacks. Mm, which can't be far off with the bear of those two. No. Um, yeah, <laughs> last bit of news this week, um, if we can kind of qualify it as news, is they're making a Tetris movie, which... Uh, it may not come as a surprise, given that there's like a Monopoly movie that's been in development for ages, and there's a, there was a Battleship movie that came out a few years ago. But there's a Tetris movie uh, on the cards, and that is surprising, but also kind of pales into insignificance next to the news that they said that there's only really one way they can treat the Tetris story, which is with a trilogy, because there's just too much story uh, to fit into one film. This is Doolaliad. Yeah, I mean, especially because if you just kind of move the pieces around a little bit, it's a lot easier to make them fit. Mm, yeah, it's ridiculous. And do you think that the last one will be a long straight movie and we'll be really <laughs> pleased when it turns up, finally? Uh, we're like, oh, it's complete now. Um, or will it just be jokes that bad for 90 minutes times three? Yeah, it will have to be. I have no idea how you turn that into a story um, mm. unless it's some sort of last starfighter situation where someone gets sucked into the world of tetris and they have to be the one who determines the order in which the blocks fall it's like it's it's so weird and you you kind of feel like the end result is going to have to be something like super mario brothers where the plot has absolutely nothing to do with the actual game or or battleship where it has almost no connection to the game itself the source material it just happens to have certain signifiers and then the rest of it is just kind of made up weirdness because you have all these screenwriters sitting in a room in Burbank somewhere just thinking how the fuck do we make this into a film mm. I mean is are all bets off with shit like this because of the Lego movie yeah I think that definitely means that you can't dismiss it out of hand mm. but it definitely doesn't mean that it's going to be a success yeah yeah and uh, you know we don't need to keep restating the point that video game movies um, are currently not doing great. This year we've had Warcraft, which has kind of not really matched expectations kind of box office-wise, is that fair to say? Definitely not domestically. It's done all right in China, I hear. Yeah, it's done very well in China, and it's oh, worldwide it's doing okay, but probably not well enough to justify continuing with it. Like, if mm. Universal wanted it to be their new franchise, it's, it's going to be a very hard sell unless they mm. can start making the future ones for about $100 million less than this one cost. Mm. And we've got Assassin's Creed coming later in the year, which, I mean, it's probably the best shot. I mean, I'm not hugely enamoured by the game, but, I mean, Justin Kurzel and Michael Fassbender and what's-her-face, Marion Cotillard, is a decent enough proposition. That's not really... That's not Super Mario Brothers, is it? No, and it does at least have a plot that you could see transferring to film pretty well. Mm -hmm. Although I'm not sure how they're going to handle the long scenes of Michael Fassbender just kind of sitting on a bench listening to people uh, or waiting for his target to show up. I yeah. think really and truthfully only Yashiro Ozu could have really done that part of the story justice. And uh, Justin Kurzel's done some interesting work first, but you know he's no Ozu. He is no Ozu. But I mean, I just think the idea that Ozu of doing a video game adaptation, the, the mind races with possibilities. 
I think it would have had to have been uh, a point-and-click adventure, something where the screen doesn't really move that much. Mm. Well, sort of like Animal Crossing. Yeah. Uh, oh, that would have been great. There we go, guys. I mean, if we could turn back the clocks. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of space-time continuum problems with this, but um, I think it would have been good. Okay, on to the main topic of conversation this week. There's a TV network in America called HBO. They've done some pretty decent stuff in the past, and we've gone on about it a fair deal. But three shows they have running, and been long-running for a, for quite a while now, uh, all came to an end this week. Uh, their current series came to an end, should I say. They are Game of Thrones, uh, Silicon Valley, and Veep. They're all great shows, so we thought we would um, catch up with all of the latest series and talk about them as a whole, because it seems like an appropriate time to do so, Ed. Yeah, and we've often talked about, uh, in kind of recent years, the greatest programming block of television was NBC's Thursday lineup, where you had, for a couple of years... 30 Rock, The Office, Community and Parks and Recreation at a time when all those shows were at their peaks mm. uh, and they were all you could watch just two hours of some of the best comedy writing on television all on one channel and the you know that broke up after shows got moved around and got cancelled and moved to different uh, to online streaming services and you know this for me and I think certainly for you as well is the kind of the closest we've come to a concerted block of programming where you can sit down for watch two hours and know as you're watching it that you're watching just some like really really top tier great television mm. certainly not comedy all the way through because the block starts with an hour of kind of grueling tension and uh and kind of sadness uh followed by kind of scabrous political satire and uh, kind of on the nose comedy about the tech industry yeah it's a lot less uh tonally cohesive uh, than the NBC lineup, I'll give it that. Our fathers were evil men, all of us here. They left the world worse than they found it. We're not going to do that. We're going to leave the world better than we found it. So we'll get into Game of Thrones first. This is season six, I believe, and season five. I, I'm pretty sure I'm on the way to becoming one of those annoying people who can talk about how the books of of uh, kind of are the true source and the TV show has diverged from it because I've just started reading them. So by the time season seven comes out, I should be up to date. But season five was the one where they kind of well and truly kind of stepped off the cliff, I believe. It is that true? Uh, yeah, last year they started to edge towards being in kind of completely new territory. Some of the plot lines moved beyond. They were still kind. They were st- they were in a. I think last year they were in kind of a terrible no man's land because they had just enough of the books books left that they could, uh, that that they were still kind of tethered to it and still had to kind of pay lip service to it. But they still had. They then had to move certain plot lines ahead. So last year we didn't have. Uh, Bran or any of the stuff with the three-eyed raven even though that had been kind of a big thing at the end of the fourth season uh, and that was just kind of left because they had run out of story there and other stuff they still had bits and pieces left so this year and that's one of the reasons why it's interesting to join in now is this year they were wholly pretty much in the realm of nothing that has been written in the books this was pretty this is basically the first season where you can say this is David Benioff and D.B. Weiss's seized story. Mm, and it's it's noticeable because in season five, there were huge swathes of the show that dragged. Um, yes. There was a lot of kind of very ponderous setting up. There was what is widely regarded as the shittest storyline in all of Game of Thrones, the Dawn kind mm. of res- rescue mission, which was pretty lame. That was all kind of thrown on the kind of the fire. And season six 
essentially just moved at the most relentless pace for 10 episodes, cramming so much plot in and so much story in. And if I'm going to have one criticism of the series as a whole, it was often at the expense of some of the kind of the character moments that we've kind of come to know and love. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt that it was... It, you're right, it did move an amazing, amazingly quick pace, except for the first few episodes where there was this kind of artificial elongation of the time until they were going to bring Jon Snow back to life. Mm -hmm. Because everyone knew he was going to come back to life. Like, even though it hadn't happened in the books, it was like, yes, you've stabbed him to death, like, many times, but... You've got someone who is who has brought people back, or always associated with the god that brings people back to life, right there. You know, there's all these people who are going to side with Jon Snow. I'm guessing at some point he's probably going to come back to life, and then it just you had to wait to the end of the second episode for it to happen, mm. and it just felt like such wheel spinning. But then once yeah. he came back to life, it really was just kind of like kicking everything into gear. And while that made for some some really great episodes particularly the last two episodes which we'll, we'll probably get to in a minute but it did feel as if like they were just tearing so through so much plot that it was sometimes hard to there was that it very rarely kind of settled down with any one character mm, yeah and i think that there's the idea that characters should earn their moments mm -hmm. and kind of earn things which is easy to say for the first five seasons because you saw characters struggling for you know several hours of screen time to kind of get where they need to be, you know, whole trilogies worth of film screen time kind of to, to get their award or, or kind of just to still be struggling. But in this season, it seemed to come a little easier. I felt quite uh, awkward around Arya's storylines towards the end of this season. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of once she leaves the House of Black and White, which really felt like a massive relief because that just felt like it was not going anywhere. Yeah. It was, you know, hours of, I'm ready to be an assassin. You're not ready to be an assassin. This person's going to hit you in the face. I'm going to disobey you. Now we're back to training again. You must, you know, it was just, it was kind of the same thing over and over again. And when she finally left, I was kind of massively relieved. But then all of a sudden, she's got her revenge on Walder Frey straight away. We're in a situation where I really hope they don't do the whole Mission Impossible. I'm going to rip my face off and be a different person over and over again mm. um, thing. And it just, I don't know, I'm not saying it felt cheap. It just didn't quite feel, uh, it felt convenient, should I say. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think has always been a slight problem with the show, it's gotten worse over time, is that it's very bad at giving a sense of... Uh, of distance and time passing mm -hmm. like it's you you have to assume that all of these things are happening at more or less the same time chronologically but then like Arya went from being in uh in bravos to murdering walder Frey in the space of a single episode yeah and it's like that's a journey that would have taken months but it's happened really really quickly because you're compressing time and you know, the, the show has never really been that good at saying when everything is happening because it's already so hard to keep track of all the characters that it would be really difficult to keep track of time as well. Mm. Um, but it did it did feel as if they were skipping over... Like, that, that's, that feels like something that they probably could have saved for next season, but because they were... It was part of uh, The Winds of Winter, which was, you know, the, the finale and they had all of these things paying off, it felt... I think it felt appropriate to have it in that episode, even though it felt like they weren't really doing the legwork. Mm. And it, I think uh, I saw something on Twitter. I think it was either Vice or, or Beanoff had said 
you know, you you shouldn't assume all the time that things are happening concurrently. Yeah. Um, with regards to Varys being in Dawn and then on a ship in the final shot of the of the whole season, and he said something along the lines of, "You should, you know, kind of assume that that's not happening because you'd have to spend." four episodes with are oh, you're on a boat going on a journey which no one mm. wants to do but at the same time a lot, sometimes it really isn't clear and we do get four episodes of people doing nothing whilst we're waiting for everyone else to catch up yeah. so yeah it, it's not the greatest show at keeping us uh, kind of in the loop but like you said the last two episodes um the battle of the bastards and the winds of winter were up there with the best stuff that show has ever done which is kind of high praise given that it is um, a show that is consistently good um, I think we said we did a show on Game of Thrones, uh, maybe season four a while ago, didn't we? And we kind of said um, it's a show that doesn't really have a right to be as good as it is. It shouldn't mm. be. It, it shouldn't be as enjoyable and as good as it is um, because it feels that it should be a bit more lightweight, or it's maybe the premise is too daft. But it just continually gets away with it. Yeah, I think in, in certainly in the case of the Battle of the Bastards, it is because. As as silly as the premise often is, and as big as some of its kind of uh, its swings for the fences are, it's often it's delivered with impeccable craft. And I think that one of the things that makes the Battle of the Bastards so good is that you know you have this big fight between these two standing armies, and they take something that has been seen a lot in the history of of cinema, which is you know these two uh, like Regency era armies lining up against each other and then deciding to do battle but it depicted it with a kind of visceral intensity that was more akin to like Band of Brothers mm. than like, I don't know, Olivier's Richard III or whatever. It was very intense and realistic and it made you care, even though like everyone was wearing grey and you did kind of wonder, how does he know who he's stabbing? Because mm. there's, there's not a huge amount of differentiation between these two sides once the mud starts falling on everyone. But it did they did a fantastic job of making the battle feel visceral and exciting but also still establishing like the geometry of everything so you know okay they're surrounded there's a pile of corpses behind them that's hemming them in and they're very slowly being kind of poked to death by all of these uh halbards mm. they're kind of that bit with the bodies and the phalanx of mm. uh kind of troops is pretty amazing um because it it's the first time i've really seen it in uh an action film set in kind of let's just say oldie worldy times yeah um where you know the realization that in those times people were most likely trampled to death or like crushed and the bit where Jon Snow is buried under a literal pile of bodies and is suffocating mm. is pretty amazing and it's the way it's shot is, is you know it's so confusing and and kind of really kind of intense I like I watched that episode when it aired over here it was on at the same time as the England game uh, mm-hmm. in which England were eliminated and whilst it was a gruelling kind of uh, hour of television it was much more it was much preferable to watching the England game but I I, I think at one point I turned to my wife and said I can't I can't do this <laughs> this is too much <laughs> this is I like I, I know that Jon Snow he cannot die again um, but it was it was just kind of so relentlessly tense and just kind of claustrophobic and horrible that even though you knew deep down that the, the knights of the Vale were going to turn up and kind of Gandalf the day, mm-hmm. um, it it was so well made and kind of so immersive that you know it pulled it off better than I think better than kind of uh, the, the Battle of the Black Water or Hard Home or uh, any of those kind of big set pieces we've had before. Yeah, because like the the was it the Watchers in the Wall last year? Mm, oh where, yeah, that one. Yeah, 
it's it's really great when they just spend the entirety of an episode or almost almost the entirety of an episode on a single fight mm-hmm. uh, particularly one like that where there is such a clear rhythm to it is like they're lining up they're facing each other uh john snow is being tempted to engage before he should by uh ramsey because uh he's making rick on where and he's shooting arrows at him and then you know the fight itself starts and there's all these different stages to it in the actual fighting and you get a sense of there's like there's at least one nice little character moment which is when when davos tells his men not to fire their arrows because they'll just hit their own men and then ramsey just tells his archers to fire because he's a complete dick mm-hmm. uh and so yes yeah, it's, it's just an episode where the the different rhythms of it really does make it really exciting although i think it that whole thing with rickon does indicate the uh like you say the lack of character moments this season because rickon was never exactly a well-established character mm-hmm. uh and he hadn't been on the show for like two years and so he suddenly comes back and he's grown four foot mm-hmm. uh and he's a gangly teenager now and then he dies like three or four episodes to being reintroduced so even though you care because it's been a while since a Stark has died and, you know, Jon Snow is deeply upset by this whole thing. It's one of those things where you think, I didn't really care about this kid. <laughs> he was never really established as a person. Mm. And for Christ's sake, man, running zigzags. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a Stay very alive. thing. Yeah, and yeah. All, it's an arrow. It's not a bullet. <laughs> pretty. If you just go from side to side, it's pretty easy to get out of the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was the big kind of revelation we've uh, been building towards for ages about Jon Snow's parentage, which um, I believe is something that a lot of book fans have been kind of sure of pretty much for a while now mm-hmm. um, about who's who's his mum, which is, uh, is it Lyanna Stark, but, yep. um, Eddard's sister, um, which would make his dad a Targaryen and yep. it would make him technically Daenerys' nephew. Uh Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rhaegar was her brother, right? Yes, that's right. So she would be Jon Snow's auntie, oh, yeah. um, which is kind of messed up and probably has something to do with her claim to the throne. But then how are we going to get this information? Um, oh, yes, we've got Bran, who is essentially an exposition machine, uh, which is, I mean, the Bran storyline in this season of Game of Thrones has been kind of cool because, like, uh, Max von Sydow was in it being all Max von sydow but it was essentially just a way to get backstory into the into the into the show, and also a way to get my favorite thing about the season, which was the actor playing young Ned Stark, who <laughs> uh, had such a great likeness and pretty much nailed Sean Bean's energy. That I'm not convinced they didn't kind of compile that from old footage from Sharp. <laughs> he did uh, look a little bit like he should have been on the John Peel stage at like three p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah like that whole storyline that was one of the good things is is just getting confirmation of a lot of fan theories mm-hmm. um over the course of the season i think they're now basically pretty much out of them um like there's that there's the hound still being alive which is a thing that book people have suspected for a long time because in the book uh brienne comes across the uh the ian mcshane character and she's walking around and she's talking to him and she notices like a large kind of like shambling guy who's got a bit of a limp and he's uh hunched over and there's a dog but there's a mention of a dog barking nearby and that was meant to be an oh so subtle way of hinting that maybe the hound is still alive and everything mm-hmm. um and so that was also confirmed but the 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 other thing that the bran uh plot line was good for and i think 
for a lot of people, I think, uh, certainly for me, represented the turning point for the whole season was the death of Hodor. Mm-hmm. And this like amazing cross, uh, this kind of time travel thing where he was trying to walk into Hodor's head and he also was in the past in a vision. So he accidentally caused the two... Uh, the two parts of him to connect and it was revealed that Bran essentially doomed Hodor to this life of only being able to say one word so that he would then be able to save him and it was this incredibly strange and ambitious sci-fi concept that was beautifully and kind of heartbreakingly uh, illustrated in, in a way that uh, I don't think I've really seen in a TV show since uh, since Lost, some of Lost's first episode um, and that episode was directed by Jack Bender, who was kind of the main guy on Lost for many years. So mm. it certainly made sense that he would come in and be able to just do this metaphysically kind of daunting idea and make it feel genuinely moving. Mm. I'm kind of glad they didn't do it again, because there was that that idea that young Ned Stark had heard his future son mm. in the Tower of Joy sequence. And I'm kind of glad they didn't kind of do some more of that stuff. But I didn't mind it, actually. Uh, it left a lot of people cold, the whole Hodor thing. Yeah. But I thought that was pretty cool. Um, you can kind of... They got away with it. Um, the other thing, I believe, is a is a, is a a kind of a book theory, which is hinted at quite strongly in this season, is that Tyrion is related to... He's also a Targaryen? Yes, there is a book theory that uh, Tyrion's uh, mother was raped by the Mad King, mm-hmm. and that that is one of the many reasons why uh, why Tywin didn't like him. Uh, and there's a he has a moment with the dragons, yes, which is kind of uh, inexplicable, mm-hmm. I guess, because uh, they don't bite his head off or eat him or set him on fire. They seem perfectly kind of at ease with him. Um, and uh, that would go some way to explaining that, and would also be cool if those three were like a you know posse. Yeah, there is a there's an image that's often talked about online that the the books will at some point feature all three: Jon Snow, uh, Daenerys, and Tyrion, each riding a dragon in some kind of big final battle. Uh, and that that scene certainly hints at the idea that even if that image may never occur, because it's it seems to be kind of conventional high fantasy in a way that the show and the book series initially at least were kind of railing against uh it does certainly hint at the idea that they are connected and that they are all related uh may come may still come to pass i mean obviously Mm. two of them are related and that's confirmed but Mm. yeah do you where do you think it's going to go in seven because there's one thing that happens in in the last episode of season six which is something that Game of Thrones has always been good at. If it's not so good at kind of keeping people um, abreast of time frames and uh, chronology, it's pretty good at keeping the wage bill down every mm-hmm. few seasons um, by essentially wiping out a huge chunk of its cast. And it did so with Cersei's plan um, in which she kind of just blew up most of her, her own city. Um, and it, it kind of felt a little bit cheap in the way that kind of Marjorie is a great character. And we spent quite a lot of time this season establishing her as a kind of like as playing the the high sparrow and and the faith militant only for her to be blown up and kind of unceremoniously you know dumped onto the 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 huge pile of dead bodies that game of thrones leaves behind it so where's season seven gonna go if there doesn't appear to be any baddies left but cersei yeah i think it's over the next two seasons which apparently are going to be a little shorter they've usually been 10 i think the next two the word is they're both going to be seven 
and mm-hmm. I think that they're going to start setting up the end game, uh, which would, would have to be the various uh, Targaryen offspring against Cersei, uh, and then everyone else against the White Walkers, I guess, would be the final season. Um, I do wonder if there's going to be some bad times for the Starks ahead. Because as bad as things have been for the last couple of years, this this certainly felt like the Starks were kind of in the ascendant. They, they took back Winterfell. A lot of their enemies are now dead. Uh, they're all back in Westeros, having been kind of thrown to the winds for a while. Uh, it definitely felt like this was a very crowd-pleasing season after years and years of drudgery. And I do wonder if having had this moment of triumph, if things are going to kind of start falling, the wheels are going to start falling off next year because it would be hard to kind of just keep delivering victory after victory and have it still be a compelling show. Mm. I mean, we're very close to having all of the remaining Starks back because Bran is at the wall. Yeah, and, and he needs to tell everyone what he's seen. He does. Um, and also uh, Arya is a, uh, the twins. Yep. Um, my geography is of, of Westeros is not as it should be, but they're all kind of, they're much closer than they have been. Um, yeah. So we can kind of get all those together. I mean, I hope they all get together at least once before it all starts to, to kind of go ill. Yeah, for the world's saddest family reunion. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I kind of... I like I like the idea that it's going to be you know everyone versus Cersei and everyone versus the White Walkers because the White Walkers weren't really in the latter half of this season were they after the the hold the door episode mm. we didn't really have them yeah and um, that is after they were such a strong presence last year mm-hmm. it did feel a bit disappointing because they do tease the audience with the promise of these White Walkers who are always always on the march and always seem to be on the verge of. Uh, of taking over Westeros, but seem to also enjoy kind of falling back and just waiting around for a little while. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that that is the obvious, the final conflict. And I think that's probably where like the dragons are going to come into it uh, because, you know, fire, it's a store, it's a song of ice and fire. So the fire is going to have to meet the ice at some point, but I think it's, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how they resolve all of that stuff. And if they can deliver more crowd pleasing moments, because, I mean, this season, what I thought, certainly the last, latter half of it was, was really great. I think it really found its rhythm after the initial awkwardness of uh, kind of playing with the audience sentiment and maybe going a little too far and making Ramsay into an absolute arsehole. Because, like, we already knew he was bad. We didn't have to see him stab his father and then feed his stepmother and half-brother to dogs. Um, yeah. That was I mean, a bit much. Yeah, I mean, it kind of... It pains me to say it because I liked Ramsay Snow kind of up to this up to this season mm-hmm. um, but then after a point he kind of became a little bit of a panto villain yeah there was a lot of that and like that for me even though it was knowing that he had raped Sansa and that he tortured Theon and he'd done all of these horrible things it was it still it didn't feel as satisfying watching him get his face chewed off by a dog mm. as you would have kind of hoped because by that point he was just a cartoon uh, and like if if he had died before having done all of this outrageously evil stuff, it would have been a little more cathartic than having turned him into this just kind of outrageous villain. Um, but like that, that I think also is to sound kind of like um, to sound spoiled. I did kind of wonder if this season was a little too crowd pleasing at times. 
Because mm. as, as satisfying as it was, it did kind of feel as if it was hewing to kind of conventional storytelling and conventional fantasy tropes a lot more than you would have expected from the early seasons of the show when that was basically the exact opposite of what they were trying to do when they were mm. kill off, killing off heroic characters and just taking the story in directions that anyone familiar with fantasy storytelling wouldn't have expected. Yeah, so by that kind of rationale, we should have two seasons of all of our favourite characters being kind of murdered in terrible ways, like Brienne and, you know, uh, Sir Davos, all the, all the good-hearted people going to, like, you know, fall in a ravine or something. Yeah, and then the final season is just going to be, like, three or four characters in a black box theatre somewhere because <laughs> that's the only thing they can afford at that point. Mm, the Dogville version of Game of Thrones. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's been a very satisfying season. For all its uh, faults, it has been um, it has been a real crowd pleaser. It has kind of entertained people and uh, has gone down kind of very well with, with kind of virgins who haven't read the book and people such as yourself and me, because I'm now an expert on the books, having read a good 500 pages of the first one. <laughs> um, it has pleased those people as well, which is which has been kind of uh, what it's been striving for, I guess. Yeah, and it's it's certainly going to be very interesting seeing eventually how all of this lines up with the books. Although, uh, at this point, I kind of feel as if the show has supplanted the books in some way, just because it's a little more streamlined and there's less, you know, the, the, if, if it was going to be a accurate representation of the book, there would be whole episodes where we were just lo- loving shots of food. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I've only read half the first book and um, there's quite a lot of stuff that doesn't really need to be in there. Mm. Uh, he likes to go around the houses, Mr. Martin. Um, and, I mean, do, do you think you'll have the next book out by the time season eight airs? Uh, I think at a push, he may have The Wind of Winters out. I think it may be a while. The show will probably be syndicated and in reruns by the time the final book ever comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least uh, for those of us who uh, are worried that the story might never be completed in book form... Uh, it is it's kind of very gratifying to see that it's going to be resolved in some way. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just wondering what time you'll be arriving. It's the first Thanksgiving since Mima's gone. There's a lot to be thankful for. Moving on from uh, Westeros uh, to the second two shows in the HBO triumvirate, uh, we've got two comedies, uh, Veep and Silicon Valley. Uh, they've both kind of snuck under the radar on this side of the Atlantic, but it's fair to say that those two are kind of some of the best comedy writing you're seeing on television. Yeah, and it's weird. Certainly it's weird that Veep maybe hasn't had the impact because it was created by Armando Iannucci, who's obviously a comedy legend in, in Britain. And and the show is essentially the US version of the thick of it in, in tone and style, mm-hmm. uh, if not necessarily in terms of actual continuity or anything. And... You know, it's it's interesting to kind of check in it with, in with it now because much like uh, Game of Thrones had a season in which it finally escaped George R R Martin's books, uh, this was the first season where Armando Inucci was not running the show, having stepped aside last year in order to work on a film about Stalin. Mm. And it's it doesn't really miss a beat, does it? Because I no. I had not caught up. Uh, I I not watched season four. And then when we decided that we would do this episode, I kind of watched four and five back to back. And um, you really couldn't tell that there was, you know, a big departure of someone who, um, you know, was running the show, had directed quite a few episodes, um, whose kind of voice was so kind of authoritatively stamped on the show. Yeah, it really kind of 
doesn't you know waste any time getting on with it this season and and you know it feels like the same show in a lot of ways mm, i think at least in part it's because he left them with an ongoing storyline which was at the end of the last series uh selena meyer who had been unceremoniously promoted from vice president to president after the previous president resigned uh had gone through a, the election campaign and ended up with an, a tie in the electoral college and so this whole season was about trying to, you know, change that so that she had to, uh, so that she could remain president and so that she could claim the victory and exploring all of the different ways in which the American Constitution uh, allows for a tie. And uh, and so I think it helped that he gave them a great engine to drive the overall, overall plot of the season. Mm. And it kind of... It wasn't kind of destabilized by the arrival of Hugh Laurie, which I kind of mm. thought it would last season, because when you kind of add an established star with established baggage to the show, you kind of expect it to have some effect, but he kind of blended in very nicely. Yeah, he and Peter McNichol, who was kind of the big addition <laughs> this year, both, they just kind of step in and it's it does really feel as if they've always been on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the bit where Peter McNichol has to tell Jonah Ryan off for answering his phone in an elementary school, I won't ruin the joke, <laughs> is probably, that was probably my favourite bit of the entire season. Mm. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, the show is kind of consistently excellent and is, I always kind of wondered whether it would be just a retread of the thick of it. And in many ways it is, there's, there's a lot of kind of similarities right down to the fact of having, you know, the, the uh, congressional hearing episode, which is, that, you know, the thick of it did the exact same thing um, with their version of the, was it the Chilcot thing where, you know, Malcolm Tucker is grilled by a, you know, parliamentary hearing. Um, yeah. But it's done in the style of like the C-SPAN kind of camera watching them. But it has managed to kind of make its own thing and it has probably the best ensemble, I'd say, of any show. Yeah, definitely. It's got, it's an amazing selection of, of character of character actors like uh, obviously Gary Cole who's really really funny Kevin Dunn who I think is the unsung hero of that show he's not someone who you would go to initially as thinking he'd be just kind of a great comic force but mm-hmm. he is so good at playing the kind of lifelong politico who mm-hmm. has been uh, ground down to an extent by the drudgery of trying to make to try and run a country but at the same time really delights in the battle the battling that is involved in that mm. sam richardson is my favorite yes. uh, character in this the kind of uh always kind of cheery but very literal um staffer who uh is probably not the person you want working a video camera yeah his um it, well, it wasn't this season it was last season where he was testing out a mic and he just goes bring back my pig it really <laughs> made me laugh because it's it's such a weird uh, phrase to use for checking the levels. Um, mm. but that, that was the moment I kind of fell in love with him because it's such a wonderful delivery of a kind of an insane line. And you're right, yeah, he is he is so much fun to watch and he is so good at being really unflappable and projecting a level of competence that then his actions completely belie. Because mm. he is, even though everyone thinks he's really, really good at his job, he is routinely demonstrated to be terrible at it. Mm. But in such a kind of like affable way, yes. Um, unless yeah. it's to do with uh, kind of electoral law, in which case he is pretty on the button. Yeah, yeah. He he is good at like one thing that mm. causes people to keep him around. 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he is he is very very funny, and I'm glad that he is in uh, Jonah's staff because I imagine that's going to be now that uh, spoilers, I guess, now that Selena isn't president anymore. I think the the Jonah office may become a bit of a focal point next season, or or mm. at least the reason for kind of dragging people back into the political uh, scene. I'll say this for Veep. Uh, I did not really see that ending coming. I felt mm. like the whole season was kind of working towards finishing with uh, Selena Meyer's kind of nightmare scenario, which would be being Veep again, but mm. to Hugh Laurie's character. Yeah, that was that was a big shock. I was, um, and when they even had that scene where she goes to try and grovel Tim to become Veep, I was like, that that I, I was a little disappointed because I thought that seems like it's the conventional thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like, like for a long-running sitcom, uh, it, you think, oh, it's not going to just completely blow up its entire premise. It's mm. gonna, it's gonna kind of find a way to keep her in the White House or adjacent to the White House in some way, and then to have peep, uh, someone just stab, uh, uh, to ha- to stab Hugh Laurie in the back and have him not become president either was uh, very shocking, but also weirdly satisfying in the the sense of thinking, okay, this is a show that. Uh, I can be entirely on board with because they know what people expect and they're willing to just say, no, we're going to do the difficult thing of uh, completely destroying our premise. Mm. Much like the thick of it, the uh, Veep uh, kind of shows a kind of almost heroic commitment to uh, imaginative swearing Mm -hmm. um, and is, you know, is overtaken Deadwood by a long way of being, of making cursing into an art form. Yeah, I think... It you uh, when the show started, I wasn't certain if the American cast would be able to keep up with the British one. Certainly, without a a uh, a Tucker uh, parallel, mm-hmm. because as as Armando Inucci said at the time that the show started, um, that there was no way you could have a character like that in Washington, because they would just constantly get frozen out and they wouldn't be allowed to be that kind of terrible. Um, but yeah, this the show. I think it helped that some of those cast members were on in the loop, were in in the loop, like uh, Amanda, uh, Anna Klumsky, and people like that. I think mm-hmm. it certainly helps that they got a taste of it and they were able to really bring that over to the TV version. Mm. Um, I really liked this season. There was a, a kind of a self-contained episode uh, where Selena had to meet the Chinese Prime Minister, mm. um, um, which was despite the fact that Armando Inucci had moved on. This was the closest thing that Veep had got to being a out and out British farce. Uh, yes. It had um, kind of incredibly tight kind of Seinfeldian writing, bringing all the characters in, but kind of paying off jokes that had been set up kind of three episodes, four episodes before, um, but was, you know, kind of so tightly wound around this central conceit <laughs> of gifts being misgiven and people being misidentified as people from behind. Um, that it just kind of it felt almost like a perfect uh, noises off style that would have worked so well as a stage play that one episode mm. that would be would have been hilarious and that for me that episode was the kind of the, the high watermark of this season yeah I think one of the things that was interesting because I was trying to think okay what was like the best episode of this season like Game of Thrones you would say okay I think Battle of the Bastards was probably the high point uh, and when I was looking at the list of episodes for this year it was literally just oh there's like five really great episodes in a row and like that one, that one comes at the end of the run of Cuntgate, Congressional Ball and Camp David. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's like an amazing run of these just standalone episodes that 
are tangentially about the ongoing plot of of the machinations of trying to keep selena in the white house but mainly it's just what the the show has always done really well which is it takes a and this is true of the thick of it as well as you take a crisis that may be small may be huge but you just have the characters fumble their way through it and try and resolve it uh using as much uh expletive as many expletives as possible mm. yeah yeah jack barker aka action jack we meet at last Ehrlich bachman mr bachman pleasure to finally meet you i'm i'm a big fan oh really of what metamucil polio the phonograph a nice piece of fish, segregated water fountains, senior citizen discounts at Perkins Family Restaurants, erectile dysfunction because of corroded penile arteries, deviled eggs as an entree, liking Ike. The kind of the counterpoint to Veep um, and the last uh, TV show in in this little block of uh, brilliance from HBO is Silicon Valley, which is probably out of all of the shows uh, of these three, the ones that the UK audiences probably haven't got on board with as much. But um, it's a uh, it's really has kind of picked up, hasn't it, the last two seasons? With this season probably being its best one, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first season was funny, but it was criticised a lot. I would say fairly, quite fairly, for being essentially entourage in the tech industry. Mm-hmm. because it was a bunch of bros being bros, but they were, instead of being kind of rich movie stars and his hangers-on, it was kind of destitute uh, tech guys trying to launch a company. And, the, you know, the, it had the central problem that made Entourage such a great show, which was that every episode was like, oh, we have a problem. Oh, we figured it out by the end of the episode. And in the second season and this season, what they figured out is it's okay if you resolve the problem in the course of an episode as long as it sets up a bigger problem that is going to cause that is going to rebound through the next couple mm. uh, and this season it was really it really uh the, this last two seasons actually really emphasized the fact that even though the character of Richard played brilliantly by Thomas Middleditch is you know a very smart guy who wants to do the right thing he is also emotionally unstable in a way that makes him entirely unsuited to making decisions for a company and constantly fucks everything up in a way that feels realistic and not like typical sitcom oh this guy's a he's a mess and he's gonna just cause everything to go wrong yeah it it did feel like that very much in the early seasons that that it was almost like you could watch the episodes out of order yeah, um, it didn't really matter. They were self-contained, and that's not what we've come to expect from HBO with its kind of long-form storytelling, where you can't really dip in and out. But this season, all of the problems they have, like you say, kind of almost bring down another layer of the the, the kind of house of cards that they built for themselves. Whereas you're in a position where um, they Pied Piper needs Richard as his, as the CEO. Um, but he is possibly the worst person to be CEO of that company. Um, and when they try and bring other people in, like the Stephen Tobolowsky character this season, who was uh, kind of great even just for his sparring with TJ Miller, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, well, there, there is really it's really a, a problem that cannot be easily solved. But every week you tune in to see how on earth they're going to get around the fact that, like I say, they have they need this person to be central to the company, but this person is an absolute mess. Yeah, speaking to Stephen Tobolowsky, he was responsible for two of my favourite scenes. One, where T.J. Miller walks in and just insults him. And and I would recommend people go online and find the five-minute video of all of the insults that they wrote and that T.J. Miller improvised for that scene. It's just a a great 
it's great and surreal just watching this guy just hurl insults to this guy and come up with all of these different synonyms for being old. Um, but he was all that I, I love the scene towards the end of the season where he and Gavin Belson are at the same airport and they meet on the tarmac. Gavin Belson, for people who don't know, is the head of Hooli, who is this kind of big conglomerate uh, tech industry who wants to buy and destroy the company set up by the heroes of the show. Mm. And they meet on this airport and they're both getting in their private planes. They're both going to the same place. And then they're both walking away. And then Stephen Tobolowsky turns around and goes, Gavin, what are we doing? We're both going to Jackson Hollow. And then you think, oh, he's going to get on. They're both going to get on the same plane and they're going to play chess together. And then he just says, you know, once we get up to 30,000 feet, the Wi-Fi comes in and they're going to play chess on their (laughs) iPads on separate planes. And it's just such a wonderful illustration uh, in a like just a single scene of the wealth and how completely out of touch with the with human emotions these guys are because they are just kind of big wigs in silicon valley mm. it manages to keep all its kind of balls up in the air like mm. there's a lot of characters in there that could be passengers in silicon valley but it manages to give them all enough business to kind of keep it interesting big head came back into this season uh, and not just for kind of nostalgia's sake had quite a big part to play especially when he lets uh backman uh kind of manage his money uh, to hilarious kind of consequences. Yeah, I, I like Big Big Head's probably my favourite. Well, no, Jared's my favourite character because he's just amazing. <laughs> and Zach Woods does a really good job work with that character. But I like Big Head as uh, someone who fails upward spectacularly. Mm-hmm. He just goes from being a anonymous dr- drone at this company to being a... Uh, a, a vice president or whatever he ends up being then gets a huge severance package then starts his own incubator by acu- accident <laughs> then loses all of his money because he trusts it to Erlich Buckman who is a lunatic um, mm. but yeah he he is so funny and he does have one of the great uh, line deliveries which is when they're at the lavish Hawaiian party they've they've uh, done at um, Alcatraz <laughs> and he and uh, TJ Miller goes uh, aloha and he goes that means hello. Oh, and goodbye. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like he's just so uh, uncertain about anything that's going on and constantly seems lost. And uh, uh, I, I find that to be very, very amusing because having worked in the tech industry a fair bit over the last 10 years, there's a lot of people like that who just kind of stumble through and are very successful, but don't necessarily seem to have a huge sense of what's actually going on around them. Mm. Uh, I have to say that Ehrlich Backman is my favourite character on television at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, a a kind of a, a big, dumb, well-meaning idiot, uh, driven seemingly entirely by hubris yes. um, and uh, kind of daring do, but without really knowing what he's doing until his masterstroke of this season, which is brilliant until it all comes falling down. Again, thanks to Richard. Yeah, yeah, he is. I, I love the way TJ Miller... I just love the way TJ Miller talks. Everything, even though he's clearly delivering lines that have been very carefully worked over, everything seems like it's stream of consciousness. Mm. And there's something wonderful about the way he does it, and and the sheer bluster that he brings to every scene. Like regardless of what scene he is, he is determined to be the alpha in every single room. And mm. there's nothing I enjoy more than scenes where he walks in expecting to be kind of the big dick of the whole thing, and he is either completely ignored. <laughs> or completely undermined because you can tell that he has some nebulous plan in his head that he's certain will work and everyone else is just fucking it up for him. Mm. 
Where, where do you think we're going to go with season four of Silicon Valley? Um, you know, and also Veep as well, because uh, the way they both end kind of leaves it relatively open. I think with the, with Veep, they will find some new focus. Like it may become Jonah becomes the focus of the show, or at least his office kind of it becomes the place that all of the uh, non-Selena characters end up gravitating to to keep their hand in. Um, I, I, or uh, Selena become it becomes about Selena's post-presidential life being someone who goes and stumps for other candidates and everything like that, which I imagine is its own kind of hell. If you have to go out and give speeches for people you hate, knowing you have no power. Um, in terms of Silicon Valley, uh, I would hope that they finally have success, just because that's the thing the show hasn't really done with them yet. They've had mm. kind of brief respites from failure, but they've never had actual factual like out and out success. I think it would be interesting to see how they handle that because as great as great as the last two seasons have been in watching them kind of stumble towards inventing a great product and then having it just completely fall out from under them uh, i feel like that's again like the, the idea of a standard sitcom having to constantly restate the premise and everything i think i feel like that would eventually become tiring if they just kept doing the same thing over and over again mm. i certainly don't want gavin belson to go any go near any more animals um, yes with the the build up to that elephant gag uh, <laughs> being uh, quite something, but very near the crowning achievement of this season of like you know he'll bring in an animal to make some ridiculous metaphorical point in a board meeting, ending with an actual elephant uh, dying on his on his kind of uh, on his driveway. Um, but that's really like I love what I love about Silicon Valley is um, the the kind of core cast um, and like we've just talked about um, you know Zach Woods and, and Thomas Middleditch. And TJ Miller, but we're kind of forgetting Martin Starr and uh, Kumar Numanjani, who have both been absolutely amazing all season. And like I say, everyone gets business in this show. Um, and those two, no exception, never feels like they're just being given stuff to keep them in it. Yeah, I think what's great about those two is, or it was great about the cast in general, is that every character feels so defined and distinct that mm-hmm. you know that if you can just if you just pair them off in different combinations, something really good will happen because those performers are really good and those characters are really are really well-written. And I think that uh, the thing I really like about Martin Starr and Kamel Nanjiani is that uh, they have such a wonderful dynamic of being best friends who hate each other. <laughs> on some on some fundamental level, they know that they work perfectly together and that they actually are perfectly suited to this industry and to kind of going through it together. But Martin Starr loves nothing more than to make uh, Kamel Nanjiani feel uncomfortable and awful about his life. Uh, brilliantly illustrated by the episode where he puts on Jared's horrible Pied Piper jacket and just stands <laughs> near Kamel until he gets so embarrassed he leaves. Then when everyone flocks to him because he works for Pied Piper, pretending he doesn't know him <laughs> so that he has to leave the coffee shop. Uh, and I love that dynamic. I think it's it's wonderful and they keep finding such great uh variations on it particularly when you know uh martin star has this kind of back history of being in stuff like freaks and geek where he was just the sweetest most awkward guy or uh party down where he was uh kind of a bitter figure but he was just kind of he was also something of a loser who's on the outs to have him play someone who is so perfectly confident with who he is and perfectly willing to destroy people around him <laughs> is such uh is something that i've never seen him do before and he is amazing at it Mm, tv's uh most likable satanist yeah 
uh, with a great line where they're talking about how his girlfriend has got uh, 400 Satanists trying out their product in Boston. <laughs> and Camille John Jones says, there are 400 Satanists in Boston. And he's like, yep. Catholic Church did a real number on that city. <laughs> it's such yeah. a wonderful deadpan performer. A great post-spotlight gag. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, all three of those shows, If you, I mean, if you haven't seen them, then Christ knows how you've made it to the end of this episode because we've ruined all three of them for you. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, those three shows are now the kind of like the, the kind of centerpiece of HBO's uh, uh, lineup, um, especially with uh, things like vinyl kind of stuttering. Um, and it looks like they're going to be that way into the future. Okay, what have we got for recommendations this week, Ed? Well, I'm going to recommend a TV show because we've just talked about three TV shows, one of which is a kind of a, a fantasy show and one of which is a political satire. I'm going to talk about a TV show that is a fantasy set in the world of Washington. It's a show called Brain Dead, mm. which is a sci-fi horror satire about a world in which the polarization in american politics the extremism of both the left and the right is driven by alien bugs that crawl into people's heads and cause their brains to fall out uh it is an incredibly funny show it's got an amazing central cast particularly mary elizabeth winstead who is a firm favorite of mine a wonderful genre actress who's also very funny and she's very good at handling this uh insane invasion of the body snatchers plot which also touches on just kind of more nuanced satire about the the workings of beltway politics uh tony shalhoub is in it uh, in a kind of a sporting role he's very very good uh and it's three episodes in so far and it is just a wonderfully strange and idiosyncratic show you know it is it, it blends these two genres together in a way that you wouldn't think would necessarily work and certainly wouldn't sustain an entire series but also it has all these like weird touches such as the fact that uh, it indicates that someone has been possessed by one of these bugs by having them play the Cars song, uh, You Might Think, which is a kind of obscure new wave hit, which uh, I now can't stop humming because it's really, really catchy and they play it about five times an episode. Uh, hmm. it's, a, it's a really, really good, really, really fun show. Uh, I think people should uh, give it a chance because I can't imagine it will run much longer than the first season because it's not the sort of show that does last, but hmm. it is... Uh, it is a hugely enjoyable and a really pleasant surprise. What uh, network's that on, Ed? That is on CBS in the US. Oh, okay, cool. So, yeah, I don't know when that'll appear uh, outside of America, but uh, keep an eye out for it, listeners. Um, I'm going to recommend something incredibly Games of Thronesy. Uh, as regular listeners will know, I'm a big fan of board games. And last week, my board game group, who meets uh, on a Wednesday, played the Game of Thrones board game, um, which we found to be uh, very complicated, um, much like the show itself, but insane fun, because you all have a house each, um, and um, it's you kind of imagine a, a kind of a tactical game, much like Risk, with a big map and kind of pushing units around with the stick and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you put down your orders of what you want people to do, but they're all in secret and they're all revealed at the same time. So you can kind of forge fragile alliances with houses, much as I did. Uh, with I was House Stark, and my friend Tom was House. Uh, Baratheon and uh, we forged uh, a kind of alliance that we were going to fight off the Lannisters and I fucking stabbed him in the back so hard it was brilliant <laughs> but um, I'd also had a secret alliance because you could, we dis- I disappeared off into the kitchen at one point to make a cup of tea and I had a quick word with House Greyjoy played by my friend Lou and we decided we were going to stab him if he went kind of past the neck 
we'd take him at River Run. And it was amazing. It's so much fun uh, <laughs> to kind of play that game because uh, I'm a big fan of any game where your friends end up hating you at the end. And invariably, whenever my game, my board game group meets, uh, I'm invariably the one who kind of stabs people in the back and ruins everyone's fun. So yes, I would recommend that game. It's made by Fantasy Flight who uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, they do very, very good work across many genres. And that is no exception. Uh, I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to uh, be a bastard in every sense okay cool everybody that is your lot for uh, this week uh, if you've enjoyed the show uh, please do subscribe to us on iTunes Stitcher or Player FM and if you really enjoyed the show please leave us a little review you can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook as well uh, we're going to be back next week with something like very different but we are going to going to go into a realm that we've never been in before on this podcast but both myself and Ed are hugely excited about it but you'll have to wait until next week to see what that is that said if anyone dies between now and then, then we're going to have to do a big fucking tribute episode to them. Um, but uh, just like stay with us and we'll do something that will uh, you know, perhaps surprise a lot of you. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.